the last several weeks, we've uh, explored the issue of gender. Uh, we, it's been about a three to four week series just exploring uh, gender in general, and then we spent a week looking at femininity, a week looking at masculinity. Uh, I'll say it again that probably one of the most awkward sermons I've ever preached in my life was last week. I think as a guy, like, I, probably as a pastor to give a sermon on giving and on women is probably the most awkward thing you'll ever do. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but one of the points that we developed out of the idea of our series through gender was that the genders are corresponding. Do you remember that? That it's not one gender over the other, but rather God created us as corresponding genders. And so with that, uh, we kick off today a little two-part sermon uh, looking at the ultimate form of our correspondence in marriage. What is marriage? What is this whole thing called marriage? And so this week, I, I just want to, we're going to look at, uh, we're going to kind of, I don't, we're not really centered on male or female, but we're going to emphasize some more of the women-wife uh, roles within marriage, and the next week will be directed at the husband's uh, but with that, uh, I want to, at the outset, most sermons on marriage, if you've been around the church at all, if you've uh, ingested any Christian literature around marriage, uh, they, offer, they tend to offer some practical advice from the scriptures, right? You read something about marriage, they'll give you some practical advice regarding the relationship, uh, regarding this, the interaction between husband and wife. Uh, and I, I don't want to say that they're wrong per se, uh, but I find they don't go far enough. Here's what I mean by that. I find that the most sermons and most teachings on marriage don't go far enough. And here's why. They tend to make marriage the ultimate thing. They tend to make marriage the ultimate thing, as if the goal is to have a healthy marriage, raise productive children, that you have a home with a white picket fence, you retire and you travel around the country. That's kind of the goal. That's kind of what they present and I want to push back on this a bit with this question that what, what if this is not the ultimate goal in marriage? Husbands, what if the goal in your marriage is not simply to love, provide, and care for your wife? You may be thinking, what are you talking about? What, what if there's a much bigger purpose and goal in marriage? And ladies and wives, what if your goal in your marriage is not simply to respect and submit to your husband? What if there's something much bigger about marriage or what about this? What if your marriage isn't about you? What if being married isn't about you? What if that isn't the ultimate goal? What we're going to find this morning is what Paul will show us in Ephesians chapter 5, is that marriage is about something much bigger than ourselves. Marriage pictures something much bigger. And as Paul will argue in Ephesians, the purpose of marriage, you ready for this? The purpose of marriage, according to Paul, is to put on display for all to see the glorious gospel of Jesus. That's the point of marriage. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about your wife. It's not about your husband. It's about Jesus, and it's about the glorious good news of his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what it's about. And you'll see me, you'll see that as we, as we dig this out of here. And so what this means is that husbands, when you love, provide, and nurture your wife, you're not doing that as the end in of itself, but rather as the means towards the end of proclaiming with your very life the gospel of Jesus. So we're going to see. And wives, when you respect and submit to your husband, you're not doing this simply for the fact of submitting, but rather 
doing so as a public display of the Christian's response to the gospel of Jesus. We're going to see that in just a minute. We're going to talk about submission this morning. Now, let's get that out. We'll talk about submission this morning. I'm not going to sing. That's not what this music stand is for. I just run out of room on the pulpit. So that's all this is here for. So don't get excited. Uh, I always end up running out of room. And so here's, here's a challenge right at the outset of these next two weeks for us, those of you who are married here. And I think this is a good question, something I've thought about myself. I've only been married for be six years this fall. Six years. Wow, that's crazy. That's me checking my math. I'm making sure. 12, 12 plus 6 is 8. Okay. So here's the question. Right at the outset of our subject of marriage, if that is true, if being married is not about you but about the gospel of Jesus, here's the question. Does your, does my, does our marriage function as an apologetic for the gospel or a hindrance to the gospel? Here's a good question. Those of you who are married here this morning, here's, that's a good question. Does your marriage function as an apologetic for the gospel that displays the goodness of Jesus, that ex- explains the nuts and bolts of the gospel to a lost and dying world, or is it a hindrance to them? And there's this belief that's so easy to buy into floating around our world, and especially within Christian circles, that you can share the gospel with your lips and somehow deny the gospel with your life. We've talked about that a lot here. That is false. That's a lie. That's dualistic. It's, it's not true. And so let, let me just say this at the outset here, that those of you who are married here this morning, perhaps one of the most powerful tools of evangelism that you have, are you ready for this? Probably the most powerful tool of evangelism you have, the most powerful tool that you have to share the gospel is your marriage. Invite others into your home, eat with them, play with them. As a couple, let the outside world see the gospel displayed in your marriage. Sound good? I get some good stuff. So our text this morning, let's go to Genesis chapter 2. It's a passage that we've looked at over and over and over again. We're going to try to wring out some more truth from it. Uh, We'll move from Genesis chapter 2, and then we're going to head to Ephesians 5. But let's go to Genesis chapter 2. We'll set the stage for this whole thing called marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18, we read this. And this should be familiar. We've walked through this several times now. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both 
naked and we're not ashamed. So here's what we see. Uh, theologians and, and those who write commentaries will call this the first marriage. You see the first marriage taking place here in Genesis. We see the groom. We see Adam. We see Eve as the bride. And, and notice that she was given from God to man. Do you see that there? That God brought her to the man, brought her to Adam. And it tends to, this whole giving away, it signifies this handing over of responsibility for her. That's what happens here. That's why dads at weddings will typically give their daughter away. That's where this is rooted in. God was in effect telling Adam, she's yours now, son. She is your responsibility. And in receiving her, Adam agreed to the task of care and responsibility. You see that here in the text. We see the groom, we see Adam, we see the bride brought to him uh, and for him to take care of, to be responsible for. We also see something else towards uh, verse 25, and we joked about it a few weeks ago. Remember, they were naked. So here they come, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And we see this beautiful picture of this undefiled nakedness, this purity here, right at the outset, implying a, a virgin state of both the man and the woman coming together in their demonstration of being made one flesh. It's beautiful, and right here in Genesis... Genesis chapter 2, we see the beginnings of the Christian sexual ethic right here. This undefiled nakedness between one man and one woman. Applying this, I'm going to maybe wade out into something that might be a little awkward, but I'm going to wade out into this as your pastor for a moment here. That Here's what we can get from this idea of undefiled nakedness. We'll step outside of marriage for a moment. The truth is this, that if you claim to be a Christian... So if you claim the name of Christ, you claim to be a Christian, you cannot buy into the cohabitation mindset of our culture that promises sex without commitment. You can't buy into that. And in fact, this, if you're claiming the name Christ, ready, I'm going to make a weird statement. If you're claiming the name Christ and you're sleeping with your boyfriend and girlfriend, you are not only in the wrong, you're actively engaging in sinfulness and you're dismantling and tarnishing the gospel of Jesus. My advice to you, stop it. It's wrong. It's sinful. It breaks the system. It's not what it was designed for. Now Ephesians 5. So there it is. There's the first wedding. Now Ephesians chapter 5, where we get into the nuts and bolts of this thing called marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll read verses 22 through 33. And Paul writes this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. It is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves him He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, 
A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I want to look, hone in on verse. We're going to explain some of this submission thing in just a minute. I want to push back on some of the definitions of submission. So if you at all got a little tight and tense, it's okay. We're going to explain that in just a moment. Uh, But in verse 32 of chapter 5, after Paul walks through this beautiful vision of marriage, after he lays out these roles within marriage of the wife and of the husband, he writes in verse 32 that his whole thing about being married, his whole description about marriage isn't about marriage, rather about the gospel of Jesus. And that this mysterious union of souls, this oneness, uh, if you want to explore this topic a little more of being one flesh, Matt Chandler wrote a fantastic book uh, a couple years ago called The Mingling of Souls. And I love that because that's what that word means, that to be made one flesh, this unity in marriage means the mingling of souls. It's a beautiful image. But Paul says this, Union, this oneness, this mingling of souls is equated to being a picture of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. And it's a common theme and description of the relationship between God and his people, right? If, you're, if you've read in the Old Testament, you'll find that Israel was really considered the wife of God. You'll find Israel presented in that type of a manner. And the covenants between God and Israel were marriage type of covenants, which is why disobedience was likened to adultery. You ever read the Old Testament and you'll come across God calling Israel a whore or that she's committed adultery? It's because he's viewing her as his wife. And then in the New Testament, this thought is carried out that the church, this covenantal community of God, was and is referred to as the bride of Christ, with Christ portrayed as our husband and we are portrayed at his wife. It's, it's, it's a fascinating concept, all centering around this idea that it was designed and given in order to display the beauty and intricacies of our relationship to God Almighty. That's why marriage is so beautiful. And that's the point of marriage, as we're going to dive into this. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about a happy little life. Rather, it's about the gospel of Jesus. And hear me on this. If that sounds trite, let's, let's remind ourselves of this, that heaven is real, hell is hot, and eternity is a very long time. There's the gospel right there, that heaven's real, hell is hot, and eternity is a very long time. Therefore, marriage is a matter of life and death. Therefore, our living the gospel with our lives, our watch, letting the gospel be viewed through our marriage is a matter of life and death. And therefore, to be taken with the utmost seriousness. You with me? It's a serious thing. And so we look in Ephesians 5, and this morning we're just going to look at verses 22 to 24. So we're going to go this morning... We're going to view it as our response, the proper response to the gospel of our Lord Jesus is submission. That's what we're going to look at. That's what Paul says. We're going to talk about this morning is Christian submission to Jesus and then subsequently a wife's submission to her husband. What that looks like, what that means. And then next week, we're going to look at verses 25 through 31, which reveals the Lord Jesus' posture towards us as his bride, which is love. We're going to look at what love is, what we receive from Jesus. That's next week. What we receive from our husband. 
and then subsequently what our wives are to receive from us as their husbands. So men, get ready for next week. That's a tough one. This week we'll talk to ladies, next week guys, it's a tough one. So two words that kind of come up here is this idea of submission and love. And then anybody else wrinkle a little bit when you hear the word submission? Anyone else find it kind of hard to hear that? And I think the same with love. I think we have this view of submission that is often viewed through the lens of oppression and slavery and authoritative regimes. And we have this definition and this view of love that comes through this lens of tolerance and acceptance and just wishy-washy Hollywood stuff. And we're going to press and challenge both those definitions as we kind of root out what the Bible means here. So here we go. So us towards the Lord, the proper response to the gospel, Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 24, submission. Here we go. The church is the bride of Christ. And what we're going to find in verses 22 to 24, there's applications, and it might talk about wives. There's going to be an application for all of us as Christians There's going to be an application for the wives, and there's going to be an application for the husbands here out of these few verses. And let's just clear some of the clutter out of this passage before diving in. When we read in verse 24 of Ephesians 5, we read this now as she is speaking of the wife. It says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Right at the outset, let's just clear out the weeds here. Submission does not, nor does it ever imply, and ladies, I need you to hear me, it does not or never imply abuse or or subjecting oneself to abuse of any type or form. We have to get rid of that, that culture definition, our worldly definition of submission. It doesn't imply abuse. In fact, I'm going to argue in just a moment that the act of submission has as much to say to the wife as it does to the husband. There is in this passage an understanding of worth attached to the submission, meaning this, that the one submitting is submitting to one worthy of submission. We're going to find that. And ladies, as one of your pastors, I'll walk out into this. I know all the elders would agree with me. I'll speak on their behalf and say this, if what was taught last week about you as women, your your gifts, helpers, keepers, if that is ever violated, we are your advocates here. There's my plug for that, ladies. Submission doesn't mean abuse. We will advocate for you. So here we go. Bride of Christ, a common way of explaining the relationship between us and Christ. A common illustration throughout Scripture. I'm going to fire some Scriptures at at you here. So Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5, we hear this beautiful passage that says, for the maker is your husband. Or if you would turn with me to Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2 real quick. Um, and I feel bad for you because I actually wrote the page number for Hosea in my notes. <laughs> I won't judge you if you go to the table of contents. Uh, but Hosea chapter 2, to kind of bear out this image of God and presented as a husband and his people presented as his wife. Hosea chapter 2, uh, we've got this beautiful paragraph. Hosea chapter 2, starting in verse 16, and it says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the creeping things of the earth. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever." 
I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. I love that imagery of marriage, a beautiful picture of the effect of the gospel told through the imagery of marriage. And in fact, all of Hosea is a book written to explain God's relationship, pursuit, and love of his people. And that told through the image of marriage. Or how about the, the passage in John chapter 14? You remember in John 14 where Jesus talks about going away and he says he's going to go prepare a what? I'm going to go prepare a place for you. This beautiful imagery that speaks of a husband going and building an apartment for his future wife. It's marriage language. Or we get to Revelation chapter 19. And after all the chaos of Revelation 18, we're presented with this beautiful scene of the marriage supper of the Lamb where we're finally officially wedded to Christ. So it's a beautiful picture, and it's painted all throughout the Scriptures. And then we come to Ephesians 5. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, verse 22 to 24, we're encouraged and exhorted to submit ourselves to Christ. He says it, A wife, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So submission, what does it mean to submit to Christ? Ever think about that? What does, it, what does it mean to be in submission? When Paul says, just as the church is submitted to Jesus, what does he mean by that? What does it mean, what does it mean for us to be submitted to Christ? Well, it's, it's, it's a fascinating term, and really it's just a military word, this word submit. It implies to, to arrange troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader. That's all basically what it means. It means you come in submission under, you come under the guidance and leadership of another. One author wrote this, that submitting to Christ means arranging oneself under the command of Christ's viewpoint rather than to live according to the command of the human viewpoint. I love that. To arrange oneself under the view of Christ. To arrange oneself under the authority of Jesus. And I see this playing out in two aspects here. Of how we submit to Christ. What it means for the church to submit to Jesus. Number one, it means yielding to the authority and direction of Jesus. Number one, it means yielding to the authority and direction of Jesus. Now that sounds big and flashy. So in very simple vernacular, here's what it means. And for us here this morning, this is very appropriate. This is what it means to submit to Jesus. It means every political decision you arrive at must first be filtered through the grid of Christ. It means every economic decision you make must be filtered through the grid of Christ. It means every interaction with every individual means it's filtered through the grid of Christ. And the greatest expression of the grid of Christ is found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. You want to talk about what it looks like to yield to Jesus, to live a life submitted to Jesus, spend some time in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus will lay out quite a radical life. It means this, it means asking, and this, I almost, uh, I, I wrote this and I was like, oh my gosh, I do not like cliches. Ugh. But here's what it means. It means literally asking this, WWJD, it means asking what would Jesus do? And as cliche and trite as that may be, I believe that things would be radically different. And I think this is true. Hear me on this. I believe that things would be radically different for the evangelical church 
in the West, if we, became, if we began asking, what would Jesus do, not what would, insert Republican, insert Democratic person say, the church would be radically different. And in fact, the Bible could, couldn't care less what Reagan would do. What would Jesus do? That's what it means to submit. Your life is not your own. We know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It it implies this, that church of Christ, are you ready for this? The church of Jesus, we march to the beat of one drum. We bend the knee to one king, we salute but one flag, we pledge allegiance to but one kingdom, and that is the kingdom of Jesus. The church cannot miss this, for Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Yielding to Jesus, submitting to Jesus, says he comes first, his kingdom comes first, everything out is a far second. It means holding high God's word, the words of Christ, being led by the Holy Spirit, not buying into cultural norms. It means being led by Jesus and letting him tell you where to go. That's what it means. And then the second aspect of submission, I think that's a bit challenging, that there's the cold authority aspect of submission, but I also think it means this. For the Christian to submit themselves to Jesus means also to entrust yourself to the care and nurturing of the Lord Jesus. That's what it means. On the one hand, it means you submit to the authority. You submit to the leadership. On the other hand, you entrust yourself to the care and nurturing of Jesus. This is something I've been challenged with a lot lately as we prepare for our move and trying to figure out all those pieces. And that this question has really been sticking me in my heart. It's this, that I tend to talk as if God is big enough to provide, but tend to live as if he's not. Anybody out there where we tend to talk as if God, if Jesus is big enough to provide for us, and we talk a really big game, but we go and we live as if he's not. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Kind of plagued with that question is, you know, how do I live? Do I, do I live what I say that God is big enough to, to, to provide? I've been thinking about this often as I read the words of Jesus in the Gospels. I, it's a, did Jesus really mean that? Did Jesus really mean what he said? And so Matthew chapter 6 Verse 25 through 34, in dealing with entrusting ourselves as a church, submitting ourselves to Jesus, Matthew chapter 20, or Matthew 6, starting in verse 25, Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? 
For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly fathers know that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What if Jesus really meant that? You ever think about that? What if Jesus really meant that? And what if an element of our Christian submission is willing to entrust ourselves to him? Are we submitted to the care of Jesus? Have we bought into this American dream and this puritanical work ethic at the expense of obedient submission? Have we bought the lie, and this was a tough one, have we bought the lie of financial security and with it traded away a life of abandonment to the gospel? Have we bought the lie Jen Wilkin, speaking this past week at a Gospel Coalition conference, said this. I thought this was a great little quote. She said, Those who know that good awaits them in heaven can afford to be generous on earth. They lose nothing in the giving of what has been given to them. I love that thought. We have all of this is ours. And what if Jesus really meant that he's going to care for us? What if Jesus really meant don't be anxious? I'm going to take care of you. What if he really meant it? So Paul tells us, church, submit. Submit to Christ. That's what he says in Ephesians 5. Submission to the Lord Jesus. Submission to his authority over your life. Submission to his nurturing and care. And yielding yourself to his authority. That sounds really great, Travis, but what does that mean for me as a wife? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Paul says, Wife, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So I'm going to offer some advice. I've been married only for six years, but I think I can pull some stuff out of the text here that I want to offer you, what this looks like. Here's number one. Here's what I think it means. Just like it means for us as a church to submit to Jesus, submit to his care, here's what I think it means for you ladies in submitting to your husband. It means this. It means entrusting yourself to his care. This is just one element of it. Entrusting yourself to his care. Let him care for you. Let him nurture you. I think this is one of the dangers of feminism, that men are not allowed to care and nurture anymore. I was in Virgin's, and I opened the door for a lady who was probably, I don't know, mid-40s, and I opened the door for her, and she said, thanks, but I'm not weak. I was like, oh my goodness. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Ladies, let your husband care for you. Let him provide and tell him how much you appreciate it. No matter how clunky or imperfect the provision. Anybody, guys, I'm clunky and imperfect, right? No matter how clunky or imperfect, look your husband in the eye and tell him you appreciate it. Let him care for you. And really, it's one of the central tenets of the message of the gospel, right? It's the idea that we're not capable or in need of help. As we read Hosea 2, it's easy to forget that the entire point of Hosea was to portray God as a husband in pursuit of his wife and to portray his wife, us, as a petty prostitute desperately in need of help. Let your husband care for you. It's okay to not have it all together. It's okay to relinquish control. It's vulnerable and it's awkward, but it's freeing. Entrust yourself to the care of your husband, ladies. Here's the other thing I think it means. I think it means this. I think it means respecting him and giving him authority. 
It means not mocking and trash talking. And I touched on this last week, but I want to say it again here at this point. Ladies, if you're married, shut up with the bashing of your husbands. Don't bash them. Those of you who are young and married, don't bash your husbands. It's so easy to want to wade into that. Don't do that. And this respecting and giving him authority doesn't mean that you don't make decisions together. That's a common misrepresentation of this. Sometimes it's presented like, well, I'm the man, I say what goes. Sometimes Kirsten and I joke like that, where like, I, I kind of want something, and I'll be like, I'm your husband now, come on. Like kidding around. But it tends to be, that tends to be the way it's viewed. And that's not what this is saying. It doesn't mean that you don't share equal footing in the decision-making process. It does mean, however, you trust your husband and you free him to be the leader of your family. That's what it means. Free him to be the leader of his family, of your family. And it's going to look different for every family. I'm horrible with finances. You give me 50 bucks, I'll come back with 500 gumballs and a little poor person that I've given the gumballs to. It's okay, it's going to look different. It means I relinquish control of finance, I give it to Kirsten. It doesn't, there's not these set roles that husbands do, wives do. It just means that you let your husband have authority because of this, that the buck stops with the husband. He's the one held accountable for what happens within the home. Do you remember that back in Genesis when Adam and Eve fell? When Eve ate the fruit, who was the one who was responsible for that? Adam. It's saying, husbands, the buck stops with you. He's the one responsible. And wives, do you allow this to be so? And speaking from the side of a husband and a man, have you ever thought about how scary it is to be the one responsible? Seriously, ladies, seriously, wives, have you ever thought about how scary it is to be the one responsible for a family? A lot of people tend to ride this submission thing as if we're going to put women down with it, but boy, it's scary. Right, Dave? It's scary to be the one responsible. Now, husband. So there's just two. I don't think I have all the answers for what it means to be a wife, but I think you could pull that out of the text. Now this. Here's what I said. There's some application for all the Christians. There's applications for wives. And now the application to men. Are you ready? Are you worthy of submission? Husbands, men, are you worthy of submission? Are you worthy of being submitted to? When God gave you your wife, he assigned you the responsibility of caring for and nurturing her. Hear me loud and clear, husbands. That is your job. How are we doing with that? I've harped this before, but I'll do it again. I've been learning one thing as a husband and a parent, and here's what it is. I don't get me time. There's no such thing as me time. There is them and their time, men. This doesn't mean I don't take time for myself. I do. I do. But it does mean that my priorities have drastically and radically shifted. You have a wife, act like it. You have a wife, act like it. Your life isn't about you. Not about your Xbox, not about your boat, not about your truck. You married, act like it. We can't demand submission while not being worthy to be submitted to. And here's, I, we can root this in a theological truth because of this, that Christ was and is worthy of submission. He backs it up. 
that Christ is faithful, enduring, patient, righteous, and kind. And in fact, it's one of the unspoken characteristics of the Lord. All throughout the Bible, we read that He is worthy. That He is worthy because of the fact that He is consistent, consistent and has proven Himself to be nothing but faithful. So husbands, I challenge you with this. Do you exhibit the demeanor appropriate of submission? Husbands, have you developed a level of trust? You can argue that submission implies trust. And here's a big question, and this is going to come up next week, but is your wife better off because of you? That's a touchy one. Is Kirsten better off because of me? Is your wife better off because of you? Is she growing in the things of the Lord because of you? And we'll see this next week, that Christ as our husband, continually has our ultimate good in mind, which implies nurturing and cultivating our betterment as his children. So husbands, I ask you, are you seeking the betterment of your wife? That's Ephesians 5, verse 22 to 24. So hear me on this. Your marriage is a beautiful picture and demonstration of the gospel for this community to see. It is the vehicle by which the world can see what it looks like to submit oneself to the Lord Jesus, an act of surrendering your rights and laying down your life. It's trading in selfishness for selflessness. They rejoice with being led and being corrected. It's a life centered and built around something much bigger than your petty happiness. It's centered on the gospel of Jesus. Amen? Amen. There's my attempt at explaining marriage. Part one. Uh, Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we... Thank you for your word. Again, we thank you for the truth contained within it. We thank you that it makes sense of reality, that it explains to us who we are. Father, help us in our marriages to to be loving, to be kind, to be viewing it not as an end in itself, but viewing it as a perfect display of your son, Jesus. We love you. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.